You know, two scripture passages this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. Pew Bible, page 5. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Pew Bible, page 1,753. 1,753. Starting the reading with Genesis chapter 3. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, may you, by your spirit, work in and through us to deliver to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. Following the deception of the woman and Adam, having eaten of the fruit, having been confronted by God in the garden, having after blamed each other and one another, um, this then is the punishment that the Lord mets out, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Turning now to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin... Is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace in the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. 
But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness, through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. One of my favorite clips um, from Ligonier Ministries, uh, oftentimes at these conferences, Ligonier conferences, they would have a panel and uh, all the, the wonderful pastors and theologians who came to speak at this conference would be asked questions from the audience. And uh, one of the questions was this. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And uh, R.C. Sproul had just a a unique sense of, of humor and ability to communicate. And he stopped that question. He said, wait a minute. And in his R.C. Sproul way, he said, you're telling me that this creature from the dirt who defied the almighty holy God, who said that when you eat from that fruit, you will die, did not die that day, but rather received the consequences of a curse But the greatest curse would come upon the one who seduced them. But one day would be recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you think his punishment was too severe and long-lasting? And then he said this thing that's basically become a meme. What's wrong with you people? And everybody there at that conference started laughing and in, his, in response to his expression of emotion. And then he stood up a little bit more and he said, no, I'm serious. With a microphone in his hand and then the laughing just stops. He said, this is the problem with the church today. We don't know who we are. And we don't know who God is. He says, the question should not be, Why was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? But if we really understood who we were, and we really understood who God was, the question should be, why wasn't his wrath and punishment infinitely more severe? And that's what I hope to reveal to us today as we look here at the curse And some would read this curse and look at it as judgment and punishment from an angry God. And I'm hoping that after we're done looking at it this morning, you would be able to look at it a little bit differently. Our theme this morning is Christ bears the curse so we can have the blessing. Christ bears the curse so we can have the blessing. Our three points this morning 
simply have to do with whom God is speaking to in this passage. So the first point is the serpent. The second point is the woman. The third point is the man. We're going to look at each of these words that God says to these um, people, these characters. So let's look at the serpent first, verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the, the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first thing that needs to be mentioned is that responsibility falls on the man and the woman. And we established that already when God confronts Adam in the garden and he asks them, have you eaten from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil I told you not to eat from? And Adam said, but the woman you put here with me. And the woman said, but the serpent, he lied to me. That what they were doing was the beginning of running from themselves and the reality of their condition as rebels against God and sinners. And God loves us so much that he will not only not let us run from him, but he will not let us run from ourselves. And so, they're not going to get away from the punishment that is due, the consequences of their actions. Yet nonetheless, take note of the first person, the first being that is to receive punishment. It's not the man. It's not the woman. It's Satan himself. When we think about the Bible, the scriptures as the word of God, when we think about the primary author as God himself, the ordering of this passage, of these curses, is one of those moments that's not coincidental. It reminds you that the primary author of the scriptures is God himself. And the fact that it begins with Satan expresses once again to us God's heart. The woman and the man chose to rebel. But before they ever receive the words of their curse, the consequences that are going to fall on them, God wants them to hear and to know. That the worst punishment does not come on them, but on the serpent. The serpent is brought low to the ground. Forced to eat dirt for the rest of his life. This idea of the serpent being caused to crawl on his belly. Some of you may read that and think to yourself, why is God saying... You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life when that's what snakes normally do. First of all, we don't know if that's what snakes used to do. But what is being said here in verse 14 about having to be the one who crawls on the belly and eats dust It's a reminder to us who are still in the midst of a battle against Satan 
and his accusations and temptations, that his continued existence is one of promised defeat. Before the story of the scripture even begins, before we even know more details about the power that Satan has, that he is the God of this age, that he's able to deceive, that the sin that we have fallen into is an aspect of the tyranny of the devil, that Satan is the murderer, he's the father of lies, and he is the one who is seeking to accuse us, the brethren, and to make us believe that God does not love us, God is not for us, before we know any of that, before we're told any of that, if this is the first part of the Bible that we are reading and we've never read any of the other scriptures, God is telling us that the rest of Satan's existence is one of humiliation. He's going to eat dirt. He will never accomplish what he set out to accomplish. One of my favorite songs by a Christian hip-hop artist named KB is Not Today, Satan. And in that song, he tells us something that's really important to remember when we are working, when we are in the midst of spiritual warfare and the battle that we face today. And he says this, If Satan reminds you of your past, then make sure to remind him of his future. Make sure to remind him of his future. In verse 15, we have the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first thing that we need to realize is that any Hebrew, any Jew who's reading the scripture, any Israelite who heard the words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers, would have been shocked with that formulation of words. How do you talk about the offspring, the seed of of a woman? And when we continue to read of the Toledots of Genesis, you'll see that all the lineages of, uh, of the people of Israel that are described for us are all described through such and such was the son of this, the son of this, the son of this, the father of this, the father of this, the father of this. What do you mean seed of the woman? It's a striking word. It's meant to draw your attention. It's meant to tell you that something is being told to us here. And what is being told to us here, that right at the beginning of redemptive history, there's going to be a contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be an antithesis. There's a war going on. The enmity means that now there's tension, struggle, a battle, A cosmic war is now in play in this world, this perfect world that God has created. It's not perfect anymore. How can a woman have seed 
And how can a serpent have offspring? In the sense that we come to understand this. This points, of course, as you know, ultimately to the head crusher, Jesus Christ. This seed of the woman, mysteriously described for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that would crush the head of the serpent. Even though when this happened, the serpent would strike his heel. The seed of the woman will be traced throughout redemptive history from Seth to Noah to, you know, well, actually, I'll just let the Bible speak for itself. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Saman, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Re, the son of Peleg, the son of Ebor, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. And you thought those genealogies of Jesus were boring. The son of, okay, skip a few. Yeah, the son of Adam, the son of God. What that is doing is tracing for you the seed of the woman that came to defeat the works of the devil. To free you from the kingdom of darkness and enter you into the kingdom of his son. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who carried his instrument of death up to the hill called what? Golgotha. You know what that means? It's a skull. And on that skull, the cross was lifted up and put into the ground. And on that cross, Jesus Christ Hung, and he crushed the skull. The head of the serpent. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and that is exactly what he accomplished. Yet, his heel was struck. He suffered. But his suffering resulted in glorification. His suffering resulted in brothers and sisters. His suffering resulted in exaltation. But think, for me, 
of what the suffering of the serpent ends in. The serpent is destined to suffer, to eat dirt for the rest of his life, his existence. His continued existence is allowed by God. And at any moment, God could cause him to cease to exist, to go straight to his eternal punishment. And the the serpent's suffering will never end. It will only increase. His head will be crushed. Remember what I said. When Satan tries to remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. The serpent's curse ends in his ultimate demise. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is what I like to call the best kind of foreshadowing that you can have. Because before the war ever starts, Satan is promised defeat. And the people of God are promised victory. But the curse continues. Now God turns to speak to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's important that we take notice not only of what God says to the woman and man, but also to what he does not say. He does not say to the woman, because of what you've done, I will take away from you the calling I gave to you to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. He did not say to her, I'm taking the dominion mandate from you because you don't deserve it anymore. Rather, in grace, he says to her, you still have the calling I gave to you, but it will now be made difficult. It will be called labor. It will be painful. And it's not just the woman who experiences this kind of pain and frustration. The whole world has been torn and tossed into this reality. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The world 
groans as in childbirth. Women have to experience the pain of childbearing, giving birth. Nonetheless, we must be reminded of what God said to the serpent, the seed of the woman. That means that even though it is the woman we know who was deceived by the serpent, it is the woman that carries one of the greatest privileges in this world. That's what the early church would call Theotokos, mother of God. And in its strictest sense, that's not some sort of glorification of Mary. That is the theological understanding that the work that God called Mary to was to be the bearer of the Son of God, who is the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is himself God in the same way that the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God, yet there is not three gods, there is only one God. It is women who had the privilege of bearing children down through the ages. From Abram to Isaac to Jacob. Speaking of children. All the way to Jesus Christ. Who was the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. But, how are we supposed to understand this today? The curse goes on. It didn't stop with Mary. We still experience, not we, you, <laughs> the pain of childbearing, of giving birth to children. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul speaks of how women will be saved through childbearing. Let me tell you what. If you want a verse that's been controversial, that's a good one. What are you talking about, Paul? That sounds like works righteousness, that the women have to give birth to babies in order to be saved. What about the women who can't? Well, in the New Testament, we know that one of the greatest privileges that we have is to be people who bear spiritual children. That the dominion mandate expressed in the New Testament, the same as it was expressed in Genesis, is Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it doesn't matter if you're married or you're single or if you've had lots of kids or one kid or no kids. We're all now participating in the wonderful reality of bringing spiritual children into the kingdom of God, being used by God to do so. Yet, Paul says, women, you'll be saved through childbearing. And I think what he's speaking of is 
the wonderful privilege that women have to be spiritual influencers in the life of their children. That we could all express how thankful we are for the prayers of our mothers and the way that they continue to labor even after giving birth to us to see us come to know Jesus Christ. To nurture us in the Spirit. But what about verse 16b? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What does this new relationship dynamic entail? How are we understand this part of the curse? Well, there's been three interpretations given to this. Uh, the first is that sexual desire for her husband, she'll still have that despite the pain and childbearing. There's an element of truth to that, but I don't think it's a full picture. The second is that there's an immense psychological dependence on man. So uh, she's willing to submit to, uh, to the man despite insensitive and tyrannical rule in marriage. And the third is the desire becomes wholly subservient to those of her husband. I don't think these three at all um, do justice to what is being said here. First of all, the headship of the husband in marriage is a pre-fall reality, not something that occurs because of sin. If you remember, uh, when Adam was put to sleep and the woman was created, it was a helpmate, a helper suitable to him. And so um, that is not a result of, of the curse. It's not a result of the sin in the world. It would be more correct to say that before the fall, this was a blessed and willing submission. But now that sin has entered into the world and human hearts, there is a rebellion against that rule. And I want to make clear that it's not just the woman who has a rebellion against that rule. It's also the man who has rebellion against his God-given duty and responsibility to be a husband who rules lovingly, sacrificially, as a servant. The word for desire here is the same one used in Genesis 4 to describe sin that is crouching at the door of Cain's heart, desiring to master him and make him a slave. So what is the solution? James Montgomery Boyce says it perfectly. He says, It's not the abolishing of the man's place as head of the home, as some women's liberation spokespersons suggest. It is rather the transformation of the attitudes and aspirations of both the man and the woman through the indwelling spirit of Christ. So that as Paul clearly writes, wives will be able to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and husbands will be able to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And all of us who are in marriages are continuously learning how to be better at that, how to repent of the places in our hearts that have not conform to the word of God and pursue a more godly marriage, one that does not have elements of the curse at work within it, where the desire of the woman is for the place of the husband and where the desire of the husband is to rule tyrannically and with an iron fist without gentleness and love. Ultimately, 
in marriage, both the wife and the husband should desire above all to be ruled by Christ. Finally, we hear these words spoken to the man. Verse 17 through 19. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Once again, take notice that this is only in speaking to the man does God reference the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was the one whom the command was given to, and so he is the one ultimately held responsible. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, when we read of the way that sin and death entered into the world, it does not say through the woman, it says through the man, Adam. But also take notice of not only what God does say to Adam, but what he does not say. He did not say to the man, I will take away from you the calling I gave to you to work the ground and to take care of it. To fill the earth with the beauty of the garden and to bring order and wonder to it. He did not say to him, I am taking the dominion mandate away from you. You don't deserve it anymore. Rather, in grace, he said to Adam, you still have the calling I gave to you. But it will now be made difficult. It will be called labor. Your provision will no longer be with ease, but rather it will be filled with toil and hardship. You will fight against the ground and it will fight back with thorns and thistles. You will plant the weeds. You will plant the plants and the weeds will grow. You will pull the weeds and the weeds will grow back. This expresses to us here an element of futility that has entered into the world because of the curse. One of the most um, troublesome books to get through in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. And if history is right, most likely the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. At the end of his day, he's had everything that he could possibly want. More wives and concubines than you can imagine. He's seen the glories of the world, the gold of Ophir. He's seen it all. He knows it all. And yet, at the end of his days, he sits down and he writes this. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. 
what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, that is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I mean, can any of you tell me that's in the Bible? I mean, how hopeless and dreary is that? But take a moment and shed off the exterior. Shed off the false idea that Christians are always supposed to be so put together and have smiles on our faces. And even when everything's going wrong in our lives, we're supposed to act like everything's okay. And then take a deep breath and realize that the inspired word of God himself has given you permission to realize the reality of this feeling. How often do we feel this way? You do the dishes, there's more dirty dishes. You do the laundry, there's more dirty laundry. You work to make money, the money is gone. And over and over again, you are fighting against the reality of the curse. You are fighting against the brokenness of this world. And it sometimes feels like no matter what you're doing, you make no progress. You're spinning your wheels. You're not going anywhere. That is something that all of us as humanity can relate to. We can experience. And it's a result of our own sin. Yet we are called in those moments of depression. Those moments where we scream with exclamation points like the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless! Meaningless! That God has entered into this world and put on flesh. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he has frustrated the never-ending cycle of human history. He has interrupted it and he has put it on a new course, a new humanity, a new heavens, and a new earth. And we are destined for that. Finally, God says to the man, even though what was offered to you was life eternal, filled with blissful communion with me, now you are destined to return to the dirt from whence you came. You've fallen short of my glory. You see what what God is saying here, that the, the tables have turned. God made Adam from the dirt, 
and breathe the breath of life into him. Then God said, it's your duty and responsibility to make this ground flourish. You are now Lord over this dirt. You are now Lord over this land. You are going to be able to shape it and to form it and to bring beauty and glory to it. But now what you're going to do is fight against it all the days of your life and then become it. From dust to dust. You are meant to live eternally with me in paradise. To eat from the tree of life consummately and to enjoy perfect fellowship and union with me forever. And now, you're going to get buried in the ground and everything that you are is going to crumble and turn to dust. But that's not the end of the story. Christ came to bear the curse upon his shoulders. To be the one in his body who would take away the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our souls and the brokenness in our bodies. You see, it's when Christ was crucified on that cross, placed in the grave, buried in the earth. And it's in that moment that we're supposed to remind ourselves that what God said to Adam was, from dust you came, to dust you shall return. And if all things would have been as they were supposed to be, if Christ were not the Son of God who was perfect and who had not sinned and who had on that cross had the sins of all of us placed upon him, Christ would have stayed in that grave and his body would have fallen apart and he would have seen decay like the rest of us. But the moment that Christ was raised from the dead and he did not see decay, his Holy One did not see decay, we are supposed to remember what God said to Adam and we're supposed to remember that that means this is the end of the curse. None of us shall ever ultimately return to dust again. My only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but body and soul I belong to Jesus Christ, my Savior. On the cross and in the resurrection, the seed of the kingdom was planted. The world is being restored through Christ and in his church. We don't see it fully now. We still struggle with the world, the flesh, the devil. We still, at times, get the feeling of Ecclesiastes, the sense of meaninglessness. But one day Christ will come again. And the fullness of his kingdom, the restoration of the world and our bodies will be manifested, as Romans 8 says. The sons of God will be revealed. My favorite, favorite, one of my most favorite hymns, and for whatever reason, in most of the popular renderings of this hymn, we don't sing this verse. And I think the problem is, is because this verse doesn't sound a lot like Christmas. Joy to the world, in its third verse, says... Of Jesus Christ, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, that is, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow. 
far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. So when you think about the curse in this way, I hope you think more like R.C. Sproul, who when he was posed the question about God being slow to anger and patient, and why then when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? You would answer that question the same way he did and say, what's wrong with you people? Because this passage shows us the very God who is slow to anger and patient, filled with grace, that even in the moment, the deepest, darkest moment, the most shameful moment of human history, God is saying to his people, I will redeem you. I will save you. I have a plan. I love you. And I'm not done with you. Christ bears the curse so we can have the blessing. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to let your Son, Jesus Christ, do his work in us. That we may be more and more freed from the curse and live in the blessing. For Christ in his body has taken the curse away from us. That we may live, that we may live the life of the second Adam in Him, empowered. Lord, we pray, Lord, as time goes on, that we, we would see that there is an end point, that there is a direction, that there is progress towards what you have destined for us. New heavens, new earth, new bodies with you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.